Well, good morning, saints. Morning, sinners. How's everybody today? Dry? Yeah. Praying for more snow? Just, just saying, just throwing it out there. Um, just for those who know, if you know, you know, um, Manhattan Beach Retreat Center is doing an online fundraiser at 7 p.m. tonight. So if you're one of those people who go or uh, you go to the camps or you have a cottage, just a heads up on that. Questions. Questions. Every day, we get loads of questions. And it's interesting because I love what we're doing right now. We're back into the book of Mark. This is where I feel probably the most comfortable when it comes to speaking is picking a book of Bible and walking through it. And so whenever we do that, whenever we open up the scriptures, we begin to ask questions. I trust that you would do the same. Um, you know, in a world where there's always so much bad news, what does good news sound like to you? Think about that for a second. If somebody was to come and walk up to you here today or maybe on your way out, I, oh, by the way, did you appreciate the junior high welcome today? It wasn't that awesome, right? So thank you for our junior high team. They were outstanding. But can you imagine somebody waiting in the parking lot for you? Go, hey, there you are. I got some good news for it. What's that news that you are hoping to hear? Especially what's going on currently in your life. What's the good news you need to hear? Does it have to do something with your family? Maybe it has to do with your financial status or standing. Maybe something to do with our country or maybe the value of your home. Just saying, dear. Just saying. She wants to move. This is my inside voice coming out. But I'm open to it, dear. I'm processing my therapy in front of people so that they may have questions for me or for you. <laughs> you know, maybe you're hoping to hear something about your career. Maybe you're hoping to hear something about your health, right? Or maybe it's a romantic relationship. Maybe it would have to be something to do with some sort of notoriety or acceptance or maybe success, right? What would good news sound like to you today? Now, if you're a rational human being, you've asked thousands of questions in your life. We always do. From those early moments as you were learning to talk and learning to discover the universe around you, you asked thousands of questions and you drove your parents crazy. My third child drove us nuts. What? What? What, Dad? Why, Dad? Where, Dad? When, Dad? Huh, Dad? He would not stop asking questions. And I'd even have to say, well, you know, the metaphysical workup of the universe would totally make it go in this theological construction. Okay, but why? I would never win. On Wednesday, it, like, it, it runs in the family. So Wednesday's grandpa daycare. I get to watch my grandkids. And here we are. We are I'm indoctrinating them. We watched Lion King together. You know, 30 years after their father, I now have these other guys around me. And here we are, we're watching Lion King with my grandson. And he couldn't stop asking, why, Grandpa? What, Grandpa? And every answer was followed with another question. But even today, if you think about it, 
and you're really honest with yourself, you just sort of go in introspective, you haven't stopped asking questions. Sometimes you ask deep theological questions, especially in moments of confusion or in moments of pain, right? Sometimes you just wonder why somebody around you had done something like that or said something, you know? Sometimes we just wonder, right? Sometimes you wonder philosophically. Sometimes you just ask questions with irritation, like, why does that person not know how to use a merging lane? And if you could think with me for a moment, what, what is the most important question you ever asked? Think about that. We're going to walk through Mark. I gave a brief intro into the book last week. If you missed it, go back online, listen to that life lesson. It's a little bit convoluted with three different things, but it will help you understand the background to the book of Mark. And first of all, Mark wants to tell us something about good news. So we find Mark, it's the second book in the New Testament there. Um, and it, it's actually about some really great news. So if you have your Bible, if you have your iPhones, turn to Mark chapter 1. And Mark begins to ask and answers perhaps the most important questions. He's asking stuff like, who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? And Mark is probably one of the most earliest gospels. And Mark answers these questions not so much in an abstract theological or philosophical way, but in putting before us a hard-hitting, quick-paced style. And the life and ministry of Jesus. This is what he's doing. And he's now going for it. And Mark puts in front of us again and again and again the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. The person of Jesus until it is actually impossible for us not to remain neutral. So maybe you're seeking here and you're trying to figure out all this God and Christianity stuff. Begin to work, begin to read the book of Mark. And what I'm saying is, is that you will not be able to remain neutral when you approach it. So how does Mark begin? He, indirectly, he begins as if he's answering the question, who is Jesus? You'll notice that Mark has some good news to share with us. And he writes there in the very first verse, he says, the beginning of the good news, which is the gospel in some translations, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of, the God, of God. Now what's important to understand here is that this word gospel good news, is an English version of the Greek word, which really means good news. And so the gospel is the good news, depending on what translation you're holding in front of you. This was the good news that Paul describes way in Romans chapter 116. The good news as the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. That's, that's a wow moment. And there's got to be some really good news here. But, the, but news about what? That becomes the second question. Mark tells us here, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And notice that Mark begins to describe what he is about to write as the beginning of this good news. Now today, the, the term gospel is also a literary genre. It, um, it doesn't refer to a literary genre when Mark wrote his book. 
but it refers to what is preached about God or about Jesus, the Son of God. And that term gospel was originally associated with, with historically, so you history fans, it's called the emperor cult. And that gospel was the glad tidings of what the emperor had done or was doing, and it was being spread. The glad tidings. Let everybody know, this is what we do, about, and we, this is what we say about the emperor. Now we see that word is being hijacked and changed. And in our culture, the good news of Jesus Christ, I have to go so far as to say this, has actually become watered down to good advice. When you think about it too, like as Christians, right? Quasi-Christians, Jesus-like people, if I can go that far. We're told to be kind, we're told to smile a lot, we're told to love all creatures. We're told to think positively and to feel good about ourselves, maybe even hug a tree if you could throw one in there. But the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually something far more radical and explosive. And it has to do with God's redemptive act and action in Jesus, which reveals God's love for humans. And it also talks about judgment on human sin and even satanic evil. And so we learn from Mark that this good news that he's writing about, that this good news is according to God's plan. And he writes, he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so what we actually find here in Mark, now again, he's writing to a Roman or Gentile audience. And we find he's actually now quoting both from the prophet Malachi and the prophet Isaiah. And it was common for Jewish rabbis at the time to combine similar or compatible prophetic quotes. This is what they would do. And typically, when this was done, the prophet that was considered the more significant, and in this case in our text, it's Isaiah, would usually be the only one mentioned. But he's actually quoting two people here. And what we learn from the prophet's words and how Mark uses the gospel words here is that what we are about to read in this gospel, you got to think about it, you're opening it up. What we're about to read in this gospel was already foretold hundreds of years ago. Isaiah spoke to the people of Judah 700 years before the time of Christ. This way or this way of the Lord mentioned by both prophets was announced before it ever came to pass. Mark's telling us that. He goes on, he says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole, now read this, it's significant. The whole Judean countryside and all the, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And what did they do? They confessed their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, I'm going to presume that many of us, when we've read this, we just thought, oh, okay, so they're having, a, they're having a festival out by the Jordan River, right? But we need to notice what Mark is, absolutely, is saying here for us. We need to notice the movement. There's movement going on here that Mark is articulating to us. There's movement of people out of Jerusalem. Significant. Away from the temple into the wilderness, and you hear this message of repentance and confession of sin and forgiveness. 
And so we need to understand, again, how radical what Mark is communicating to us is. And there is in the ministry of John the Baptist a stinging indictment of the religious order of the day. You know, what, what was taken over the people was this sort of deadening formalization. All dressed up, but dead inside. And this aspect of John gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building. And so God raises somebody outside of the religious system of the day. This is what Mark is telling us. Outside of that deadening externalism, outside of its spiritual pride, to call people once again to what every human being needs to do. Every one of us needs to confess how deep our sin is and to seek the one that you can't earn, which is forgiveness from Jesus. We can't earn it. We receive it. And also, John's baptism is interesting. Again, it's something we don't even think about, but we need to stop. We need to ask the questions. And John's baptism, it differs, it differs significantly from the normal Jewish immersion customs for ceremonial purification. Because John's baptism is not done all the time. Like the Jews did. They always washed. They doused. They went. They went. He, no, no, no. It was done once, and it didn't need any repeating. And it's not just a simply of a rite of cleansing, but it's an initiatory uh, rite in which the one baptized repents, accepts God's offer of forgiveness to be saved from what? From the fiery judgment that's coming. Non-Jews who were converting to, Jerusalem, uh, to Judaism would immerse themselves in water. This is the custom what they do. Uh, probably under the supervision of a, a temple priest. And so to tell Jewish people that they had to baptize, be baptized and to repent the same way that non-Jews did would have been very offensive. So what John the Baptist is doing out there is he's pulling people away from the temple and it's offensive. And most Jewish people thought if they were born into a Jewish family you know, and they didn't reject God's law, well, they would be saved. Well, John told them instead that you had to come to God the same way that other people did, that non-Jews did. We're all in it together. This is the way you come in. And the point of John's baptism is that everybody has to come to God on the same terms. This is what Mark is communicating. And Mark teaches us through John that this gospel is a good news demanding radical humility. And we see this in two ways. First, we see the radical humility in what John has been declaring, right? Right? The prophets uh, told us that John would be preparing the way of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Again, more questions. Does it mean that he would roll out a red carpet? Was he preparing uh, hotel accommodations for the Messiah at Jerusalem Hilton? You know, No, John's preparations were focusing on preparing the hearts of those who heard him. And using a little exaggeration in verse 5 here, uh, it tells us that practically everybody was coming to listen to this crazy man out by the Jordan River and what he had to say. Everybody. And so what were they hearing? What were they hearing? This, this voice crying in the wilderness, this voice announcing a radical call for redirection. 
John was saying, look, you're going in the wrong direction of life. You need to turn around. And that's what repentance is. It's a changing of our minds about the direction of our life. It's a remorseful admitting that we are going the wrong way. We need to go God's way. We need to do a 180. And we see that the people coming out were actually getting this message. Something was happening down by the river. And we're told in verse 5, what? They were confessing their sins. The way that John was ministering to these people was with, through a symbolic act of immersion, putting them under, you know, or washing, if you want to put it that way, sort of what baptism is mean, just as the water cleansed their skin. John wanted the, them to see that this symbolic act of redirection signified a washing away of their sins. Next week is our baptismal Sunday. We're going to see that again taking place. And we're not told that this forgiveness was a once and for all kind of thing, but like the Old Testament rites of sacrifice, it had to be performed over and over again. So John's baptism was simply getting people ready, getting them turned in the right direction for the way of the Lord that was going to be revealed. But John did more than just declare this radical humility. He also demonstrated it. Look at what it says. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. His wife must have been proud. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I find it very strange that we're told that this guy had a vegan diet and a strange wardrobe. When you look at it, like, why are these details there? But the fact is, he's not only proclaiming humility, he is practicing it. And the fact that there were so many coming out to hear him didn't puff up his head. His success did not cause him to lose his perspective. The one coming was so much more mightier than him, and he's just letting everybody know. You know, in ancient cultures, the master of the house would enter the house and the junior, the lowest of the slaves or the servants, the slave of the slaves really would run to the door, get down on his knees, untie the, the sandals and wash the, wash the dirty and dusty feet of the master. Technically, it was called a despicable job. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do this for the one who's coming. And so John really is considering himself uh, uh, even lower than a slave. And again, the point that John is making, that Mark is trying to get us to see, is this point of radical humility. Now, the question we got to ask is, does that sound like good news to you? And to many, this would be anything but good news. Maybe even offensive news, when you think about it. But not good news. And Mark's emphasis is on the one who comes, is, is actually this one who comes is more powerful than this guy John. And he's going to baptize us, not with water, man. He's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit who's announced from heaven, who is tested by Satan in the desert. And so Jesus is this long-promised coming one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the bearer of the Spirit, the victor over Satan. This is who Jesus is. And so this passage is not about John, the nature or the mode of baptism, meeting God, fighting off Satan. It's is all asking, what are we going to do about this man named Jesus? 
Mark writes, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. You see how quickly this thing's moving along. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now again, the progression of the events here should make it very clear that the one whom John was speaking about, the mightier one, is Jesus from Nazareth. This is who we're talking about. It's clear. Not simply from the fact that Jesus appears right after John's speech about the one who's coming, but even more so from the fact that God himself, we see, confirms the identity of Jesus. Something miraculous takes place at this baptism. And we see here that this good news of confirming God's hero, can I put it that way? You know, the way of the Lord, that, that, uh, that the prophets spoke of was coming through God's own son. It was now coming through Jesus. That he would be the agent of God's deliverance, of complete forgiveness through this spiritual baptism as we heard about. And so we're given this visual, visual and audible confirmation of this fact. We're told that in verse 10 that when Jesus came out of the water, the heavens opening and the Spirit of God rested on him in the form of the dove. And this was to mean uh, to be for those watching to see a tangible picture of a spiritual reality that is God's anointing on Jesus. That God took pleasure with his son. Mark gets right into the story. And even the picture of the heavens opening is actually from an Old Testament image of God breaking into our reality on behalf of his people. And so we have this thing called good news. And when we think about it, good news is often about a hero. And whether that hero is simply someone who can help us out at our workplace, right, or at school, or with our family, or maybe our hero could be a political figure, or a celebrity, or some kind of religious figure. All of us, when you think about it, all of us are looking to look to or for someone. We want heroes. Now once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, he was with wild animals, and the angels attended him. So not only does John, uh, sorry, not only does Jesus identify with the act of baptism, he also faces the temptation. Just as you and I do every day. And yet there's nothing random about these temptations. We read that the Spirit of God compelled Jesus to leave the Jordan and to, to wander into the desert. Well, why? For the purpose of testing. Well, how? Well, he, even though he found himself in this barren wasteland, Jesus wasn't alone, when you think about it. Satan, the ancient enemy of God, was there to tempt him. And of course, you want to find out more of that, we can go to Matthew and Luke's Gospels, and they describe the temptations that Jesus had to endure. And Mark seems to emphasize the simple fact, and I love this about Mark, ah, he was tempted. Short to the point. And you see, any sin, any surrender to temptation would represent Jesus, the man going his own way and not God's way, but that's not what happened. You know, it was Satan's goal to derail Jesus, but that's not what happened. And clearly, it was an incredibly difficult time 
or a period of time. Notice, Mark, what does he add? He adds the fact that there are these wild animals and ministering angels. But the sense here is that Jesus didn't succumb to the enticement of his adversary. He was not willing to renounce God's will, to substitute God's plan for Satan's plan or any other human ideas. Mark is to the point. He's moving forward. And what Mark is relaying to us is that this gospel is good news, signaling evil's defeat. And from the beginning, from the very first time, the first human begins to reject God's will, not one person born has ever been free from the stain of rebellion or the stain of sin. We're all part of that. All of us have been tempted. All of us have been tested. And we've all failed, have we not? Please tell me you failed. Not even one human being was free from our default tendency to live a me-centered life in this God-centered universe. That is not until Jesus. And this is the good news, isn't it? If just one man has broken this dreadful and depressing legacy of human failure and evil, then it means that there is actually now hope for all of us because of why? This one man. And so we have to respond to Jesus. We have to respond to who he is. We have to respond to what he has done. We have to decide whether we will follow him. And we have to face the reality of the cross. We can't be neutral, as I said earlier, and read the Gospel of Mark. Because I love the beautiful way that he tells the story of Jesus. How when, when you get into it, it begins to confront your deepest dreams. It confronts everything you would think about in your world. And you know how? By putting you in front, but by putting in front of you, sorry, the person of Jesus. We know that everything we hold in our theology, everything we believe as Christians, is rooted in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rooted in his historical work on earth. And it's right for us to go back to that again and again and again and to march back to the Gospels and, and to work our way through the Gospels again and again. Why? Because without Jesus, without his work, all that we believe would actually be empty and worthless. So let's take a step back here. You know, we open up the other Gospels, we see, you know, Christmas, right? Mark doesn't address the birth narrative of Jesus. Basically, he launches immediately into the declaration, into the identity of, of Jesus, the Messiah. Those words, as they are translated in English, couldn't be more radical. I would actually argue that these words cut a slice right down the middle of humanity that because there are only actually two classes of people who are living on earth. People who actually believe these radical words and people who don't. And if we actually believe them, they will change everything you think about yourself and every place you would place your hopes and dreams in. And if you don't believe them, then you think they're ridiculous, then you think it's delusional and not worth the paper that it's printed on. And again, I think that because we bring so much rich theology to these readings of the gospel, we forget how radical these words are. How radical these words would have been to somebody in the time that they were written who would pick up this book 
and begin to read these words by Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Many commentators say the way this gospel begins alludes to the way that the Bible begins. Mark was sort of comparing Genesis when he was writing here. In the beginning. And there's a way sort of in which Mark is saying what I'm about to you know, tell you, the story that I'm about to tell you, the person I'm going to introduce to you, this is kind of like the author's in his mind, has fundamental and seismic implications as the creation of the world did. I got some news for you. And as God in that moment creates the world out of nothing, that physical, that physical creation, this in the same way is a spiritual creation that happens. Mark is communicating. He's recreated by Jesus, so to speak. This is God's remaking his world through Jesus. This is an awesome new beginning. This is what the world has been waiting for. This is what the world has hungered for, that this world has needed. And God is going to deal with sin, and he's going to deal with the brokenness of the world, and he's going to answer all the dilemmas that could be answered. And the question comes, how? In the person and the work of Jesus. And this is the best of news. It's the gospel. God won't sit and allow his world to live in a darkened and damaged and deceived and seduced and broken by sin. He's going to intervene in the person and in the work of Jesus. And that's the radical thought. You think about this. Jesus, a male human being, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. His dad, Joseph, was a carpenter. His Mary was his mother. This real human being, this real man, you could see him, you could hear him, you could reach out and touch him. He really did live. His feet really did touch the earth. He was really a human being. But Mark would say, don't you understand? Listen, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Who would have ever thought that this is the one that all the prophets talked about? This Jesus of Nazareth is the wonderful counselor. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Prince of Peace. He comes carrying all the hope of humanity, all the promises, all the predictions from the prophet. He comes carrying these, and it's almost hard to wrap our brain around that this is the Messiah. This is not just the hope of the world. This is the hope of humanity. This is the hope of the world. We have to grasp this. And Mark's not done. This one is the Son of God. Fully man, fully God, is pre-existent God. This is the creator. This is the sovereign one. This is almighty God coming down in human flesh. How could it be? How could it be that this Man is God. What is this message you're talking about? What is this gospel? It, it really, when you think about it, it's the epicenter of our faith because there could only be one solution. That God himself needed to come in the form of man to be God-man. The second Adam had to be the son of God because if he was not the son of God, he couldn't live that perfect life and be that perfect lamb of sacrifice, satisfying the father's anger and purchasing forgiveness and righteousness for us. There's a whole load of theology there. 
There's a way in which the whole message of the gospel is in these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's hope for us there. Because God's ultimate answer is not to give us a set of principles. Not to give us some wise philosophy. Not to give us a moral code. His ultimate answer is to give us himself in the person of Jesus. The Son of God. God's greatest, greatest gift to us is his Son. But I'm afraid. Because I know it's true of me. I can't speak for you. But I found a quote, and these words become all too familiar to me. B.B. Warfeld, he writes, he says that one of the dangers of theological education is that the radical glories of the gospel just become so familiar to you that you lose your sense of awe. And in losing your sense of awe, you lose your thankfulness. And in losing your thankfulness, you lose your worship. And in losing your worship, you're just one step from idolatry. Isn't that powerful? Well, it spoke to me. I don't know if it's speaking to you. I'm just sharing it with you. I'm trusting it's going to speak to you. But have you lost your awe? Why do we come? Why do we gather together once a week or in life groups? Why do we read scripture? Why do we pray? Have you lost your awe? You know, the religion of the day was riddled with theological pride. Spiritual, behavioristic pride. You know, we, talked, we can talk about the pride of the Pharisees and the other religious elite, but maybe one of the reasons we're told about John's garments here by Mark is that while John is sort of living in camel's hair, the Pharisees were wrapping rich robes of material, hoping that their robes wouldn't touch some despicable person who was nearby. And I think the contrast is significant. We can go back as far as Isaiah. We go back as far as Isaiah, and what does God do? God addresses attitude. Now, at any point in time, you want to say amen or ouch, that's fine. But listen to this. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. It says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fat enamels. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, convocations. I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all of my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Those are heavy words. And then we're told later, and we see it in Isaiah 29. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. 
So God raises up a prophet apart from the formal religious system of the day. To do what? To call people to repentance, to confession, the seeking of forgiveness. And we can't read Mark without hearing its warning. And let me be honest, faux religion isn't dead. We still have it today, don't we? Should I be so bold as to propose that it still exists in 2022, even here in the walls of Soul Sanctuary? You know, that we can sing somewhat enthusiastically and yet be an ungrateful father or an ungrateful wife. We can talk about all the theology and the love of God and yet live selfish, me-orientated, unloving lives. Stepping over human need and not being bothered by it at all. We can talk about righteousness and forgiveness of Jesus and that very week we'll be looking at porn. We can talk about our reconciliation to God but we're we're willing to live in a broken relationship with our brothers and sisters. We can talk about the sovereignty of God but we try to move ourselves into control of situations and circumstances. And we worry all the time. Our heart of faith, folks, cannot be our theological knowledge. It must not be our external Christian habits. It must be a heart that loves and worships Jesus and is ruled by him in all of the situations and all of the relationships of our daily lives. Do people at work know you're a believer? And if they do, do you know how closely they watch you to see if your words and actions line up together? Same goes for school, same goes for homes. Is it quite possible today that God is saying to us, maybe some of us, enough of your songs, enough of your offerings, of your buying another Christian book, you're just an abomination to me because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Like I said, you can say amen or ouch at this point in time. That's truly up to you. But there's a radical picture here of God turning his back on the system. And that system will never lead to redemption because that system is not dependent upon God. And there is such a thing as Christless Christianity. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Okay, all right. But I don't practice what he teaches. But I'm a Christian. I'm sorry, if that's you, I'm calling you out. What are you going to do with Jesus? And can it be that your theological knowledge and your Christian habits actually hide and promote personal sin because it's not habits of the heart and it's not theology of the heart? You're just hiding behind something. The introduction to the ministry of Jesus is this knife, like I said earlier, that slices its way through the hum middle of humanity. And if we believe these words, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Mighty One, the Savior who will give you new life, it changes you and, and everything about your life. It's change. 
and it becomes the single most important thought and pursuit of your existence. It defines everything you think about you, everything you think about your world, everything you think about others. It should. That's who Jesus should for you and I. Or, guys, it's a silly delusion. How could we believe such a thing? So in a world where there's so much bad news, what would good news sound like to you? What's the good news you need to hear today after pastor just kind of dumped on you? <laughs> Did you say amen or ouch? Both. Okay, good. All right. Good answer. The good news is that God has a plan. He's got a plan that he is carrying out and that no human can frustrate. The good news, it alerts us to the fact that we are going the wrong way when we're going the wrong way. And it gets driven home when we're going the wrong way and we're reminded of the body of Jesus because of our waywardness and our rebellion against God. The good news is that evil's grip on our world, evil's grip on our hearts has been broken. That's the good news. It's broken through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. It's broken. The perfect lamb lays down his life in our place. The good news that clearly identifies for us the man that God has appointed to bring us real forgiveness and bring real life will powerfully confirm when that man came back from the dead. And so we have to ask the question, if this is the beginning of the gospel, where does it go from here? Where does it go for me? Where does it go for you? For many people, Jesus sort of stays right here, someplace similar that is an incomplete story. You know, sure, we may think highly of him or we may marvel at him. We might even talk about his death and resurrection. But the fullness of the story doesn't really fill us. And that's sometimes where we don't allow the story to lead us to God. And so today God wants this good news to be the good news you long to hear every day. What do you need to hear today? Maybe you're longing to hear good news from a doctor or good news from a lover or good news from an employer. But it's the good news of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, that puts all other news in perspective, that helps us test, that helps us discern, that helps us to prove and prioritize. So what are you doing with Jesus? Simple question this morning, have you placed your faith in him? Maybe you're so, I'm trying to figure this out. Great, I'm just asking the question. If you're a believer, do you live by faith in him? Does that, your, does your belief in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, shape the way that you think about your marriage? Shape the way that you 
think about parenting, the way you think about your life at university, the way you think about your job? Do the radical claims of the gospel of Jesus move and motivate you? Do you come with a deep sense of need? With an enthusiasm of worship? Or is it that you lost your awe? And maybe, just maybe we need to consider a moment to confess that things have just become too familiar, too commonplace. That maybe that life is, maybe our lives are not driven by the worship of Jesus the way it should be. I want us to celebrate, I really do. I almost got inspired to come up on stage when you guys were leave, leading. Almost, almost did. But you were doing such a good job, you didn't need me. We're getting into scriptures again. We do every Sunday. Come prepared with this idea of, God, I need you to speak to me. I need you to open up my eyes. I need you to open up my life. I need you to... Allow me to be free to celebrate. And that our celebration not just be with a theology that we embrace with the songs that we sing, but with every word, with every thought, with every desire and every decision on our lives that when we leave this place, after we have met together, in community, worshiping together, praying together, drinking coffee and tea together, hearing each other's stories together, that when we leave this place, we leave empowered, knowing that we've met the Almighty God, and we go outside and begin to change this world. Why? Because we have a message as believers of good news, of a healer, of a restorer, of an encourager, of a one who is filled with peace in a world that is so messed up and people are dying all around us. And you know where they're dead first? They're dead inside first. Maybe for some of you here this morning, this is truly the beginning. It's quite possible that somebody's sitting here and this is the beginning of the gospel for you. And if it is, uh, I want to encourage you to do a response, a response to the moment just between you and God. You can just cl close your eyes and just between you and God, ask for forgiveness from sin. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Ask to make, uh, ask to allow him to give you the strength to make a difference in the world in which you find yourselves. And for others, this is God's reminder of, uh, to you of what you've already embraced. But maybe you've forgotten. We can blame it on COVID today. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that. It's so easy for us to take the good news of the gospel for granted. And it loses its luster in our eyes. And maybe that's where you're at today. And if it is, ask God to thrill your heart once more with the wonder of the good news. That you would hear the news of God's plan, that God's hero, God's victory through Jesus, that you would respond like you were hearing it for the very first time. Why don't you ask God for that today? 
in a world where there's so much bad news, what, good new, what does good news sound like to you? I'm going to ask that you stand with me. We talked about this. We talked about the voice. The voice in church, right? When people are singing. And COVID sucked, right? Because we couldn't hear the voice. And when you had your masks on, all we heard was... <laughs> now again, I'm not disparaging mask wearing. I'm just saying from a perspective here as worship leaders, there's something about the congregational voice. It's majestic. It's moving. And I think sometimes people, we just let our spirits get cold. And God is trying to wake us up. And if there's ever a time where the church needs each other more than ever, it's now. It's being physically present, together in worship, together in prayer, together encouraging, together in building one another up. We've been so separated, we've been so divided. We need to see God begin to manifest his work in our hearts first before we start seeing it anywhere else. We need to, my wife hates it when I say we need to, but I'm saying it anyway. How, how about I say you must? Can I use that phrase or that's not, that's too strong, right? That's even worse. Thank you for correction. May I encourage you? <laughs> May I encourage you to really begin to do a heart check and to allow God to begin to speak to you and move in you so that you can respond freely to him not worrying about what other people say or think, that you become rejuvenized because we have this good news that God is trying to communicate to us. And then Mark is real quick and to the point. Why? Because he wants to use you and I to change that world out there. Let's just sing together this song. We sung it already before. I've asked the band to do it again. Go ahead, Dwayne. I have 
Lord, we thank you for this powerful beginning of this beautiful gospel. My prayer is that it will unsettle us. May it give us a lens into the struggles of our own hearts. May it renew in us belief and celebration and worship. And may we not take for granted the goodness in which we find ourselves because of you. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. If you're able-bodied at the end of our gathering today and you can help us stack chairs eight high, we'd appreciate it. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. Here it is, folks. Go in peace, love, and care for one another in the name of Christ. And may the Spirit of God, which filled John and Jesus, may it fill your hearts, may it fill your souls, and may fill your minds. May the power of God which upheld them, and may that strengthen you for each day. And may the love of God which directed their every action be your guiding light and your shining star both now, all week, and forevermore. And may the path that Christ walks be the road that walks through us. 
be blessed and go and live the church. Amen. Amen.